Hey, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for today. And Lord, we want to pray for the ministry of birth choice. We pray, God, that you would continue to just use them here in North County to be a beacon of light for you to be the arms and the the hands and the feet and the heart of Jesus, especially to those who end up with an unwanted pregnancy. We thank you, Lord, for uh, just what they do to help save babies. And Lord, we pray today that as we get into your word, that you would minister to our hearts today by your Holy Spirit. I pray, God, that you would do a work in this place and helping us, Lord, as followers of Jesus to embrace all that you have for us. Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you, God, for what you did in our hearts this past week at the our, our week of prayer and fasting. Lord, I thank you for how you're moving in our hearts to give us a burden for the lost. And I pray, God, that that would grow and that you would that we would be vessels and instruments that you can work in and work through. Lord, we do believe that we have been blessed to be a blessing, and so we want to be yielded to you. Bless our time in the word today, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. Question for you. Have you ever stepped in it? Have you ever stepped in some mess? Or found yourself in a situation where you just realized that you were over your head? Or a situation that you realized that you just got way more than you bargained for? When I was a kid, I remember one day I literally stepped into a major red anthill. In fact, it was like a city. I mean, it was just a bunch of them. I stepped into it and then I fell in it. I had red ants all over me. I got up, I'm racing home. And as I am, I'm peeling off my clothes. Um, First streaker, I think, in my neighborhood. Um, But I just didn't want to get bit by those ants. And so I'm sure all All of us have had those moments where we stepped into something that ended up just being radically difficult and hard. But we also have those moments where we step into something that's awesome. Something that's sweet. Maybe it's a a new relationship. Maybe it's a new friendship. Maybe it was a a new job that you stepped into that you found, wow, this is what I've been waiting for. Maybe maybe it was a, a new neighborhood or a new community that you stepped into and got some wonderful friends. Maybe it even was a a new church. I mean, I know several of you have told me over the years that that's exactly how you felt the first time you stepped into this place. That it was like God just met you and you felt like I am home. For some of you, it took a little while, but, but for some of you, it was that very, very first day. Well, here in Ephesians chapter 2, we read of something that God is doing in all of us and for all of us that he wants us to step into. And so I want to read beginning in verse 8 where Paul talks about how we were saved. He talks here about our salvation. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So he's telling us here that salvation is about something that God did for us and God did in us. That's the message of the gospel, that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins and separated from God, God did something about that. God sent his beloved son, Jesus, to leave heaven and come to this earth so that he could go to the cross 
And on that cross, he would die in our place. He would take the punishment that we deserve so that we could be made right with God, so that we could enter into a relationship with God. But Jesus didn't just die. Three days later, he rose again from the dead. And he lives, and he gives his life to anyone and everyone who would put their faith in him. And and what Paul's saying here is that salvation, it's not something that we earn through our own works, but it is the gift of God that he has done for us. But I want you to notice what Paul says in verse 10. He says, for we are his workmanship. Everybody say workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That word workmanship is such a beautiful word. It's poema in the Greek, and it literally means masterpiece. God's masterpiece. Now, if you are thinking right now, yeah, I know that I am a masterpiece. I worked really hard to look like this. That's not what Paul's talking about, okay? He's not talking about our physical appearance. He's not even talking about human anatomy, even though the Bible does say that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, and the human being is the most uh, complex, unique, and fascinating of all of God's living creatures. That's why when we see the baby in the womb, I mean, it's so amazing to think about what God is doing there and how he has designed uh, a, a baby. But he's not talking about that here. He's not talking about anatomy. He's talking about redemption. Look at verse 10 again. The key phrase is that phrase created in Christ, that you have been created in Jesus. That means when you become a Christian, when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, God takes you and he places you in his son. And so he sees you in his son covered in the righteousness of Christ. He sees you in Jesus as a brand new creation. Old things have passed away, the Bible says, and all things have become new. And he also sees you in Christ. He sees your potential. He sees you as a masterpiece in the making. I want you to think for a minute about art and about artists Because art is usually the expression of the artist. So if you meet an artist who just kind of has a dark aura about him or her, you know, they dress in black and they just kind of have a dark aura, you're not surprised when all of their paintings kind of have a dark aura to them, right? Or, you know, we, we read it, we, we know the music that the blues, and the blues are, you know, guys writing songs about their difficulties, right? Or, you know, you hear about the, the song where my truck broke down, my dog died, and my girlfriend left me, and you know it's country music right that you're listening to because that's what they sing about any Swifties in the audience today you probably don't want to admit that in in church what's a Swiftie a Swiftie is a Taylor Swift fan and the thing about Taylor Swift now I don't know her music I don't listen to her music but I have read that Taylor Swift has had a lot of uh relationships with guys that she has dated that hasn't worked out she's gone through a lot of guys and the thing about Taylor Swift is after she breaks up with somebody she writes a song about that 
She's expressing herself, you know, through her music. She's writing a song about that, that breakup. And, and uh, a lot of those songs have become number one hits. I don't think any of those guys, guys got royalties from, you know... <laughs> If you are a Chiefs fan right now, uh, you know Travis Kelsey, your uh, tight end on the Chiefs, a great player, is in a relationship with Taylor Swift, and uh, he's probably going to have a song written about him pretty soon, you know? (laughs) My point is that art is often the expression of the artist, and the thing that is interesting about what we're told here in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, is that God is telling us that he's an artist. And as an artist, God expresses himself through his creation. Now, we, we see that in creation as a whole. As David said, the heavens declare the glory of God. We look at how this world and our universe was put together and it declares to us, it, it expresses to us the glory of God. The Bible tells us, as I said, that we as human beings are fearfully and wonderfully made. And again, God is expressing himself to us through the human anatomy and just the complexity, the intricacies of how he made us. But what Paul is telling us here, something just amazing to think about, is that God is this artist. You could think of it this way, that as God says, you are my masterpiece, he's saying, you are my painting, you are my song, you are my sculpture, and I'm wanting to express myself through you to the world around you. And we fulfill that, we experience that by stepping into, this is what Paul says, the good works that God has prepared for us before he even knew you, or before you even knew him. Paul put it this way, you were created in Christ for good works, that God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. And the idea of walking in them is this idea of stepping into what God has prepared us for. Now, last week, we talked a little bit about knowing what our assignment is, of how Paul the Apostle was declaring, you know, I want to know the reason why Jesus has apprehended me. And God has given all of us assignments. And we talked about how one of the ways to know what your assignment is, is by simply, you know, looking at what has God put in my hands? What has he put in my hands? What are my resources? What are my relationships? Those are the things that are, that are part of my assignment. And also, what are my opportunities? What are the doors that God has opened up for me, has opened up for you for ministry and to be in service to Jesus, to to help others? God wants us to step into that. That could be today as simple as grabbing a baby bottle and filling it up with some change and filling it up with some money. That's an opportunity that God is inviting us to step into. And so I want to encourage you, don't run from your opportunities like Jonah did. Remember, God had an opportunity for Jonah, and Jonah ran from it. Don't run from it, but step into it. Now, Paul, who we've, been, who we've been looking at, we've been following Paul on his missionary journeys here in the second half of the book of Acts, Paul understood this. 
He understood how God was presenting these opportunities for him, and he was stepping into it. And Paul was always thinking about, you know, why has Jesus apprehended me? Why did he save me? What does he have for me? And every single place where Paul went was the the revelation of that prayer. Lord, why have you apprehended me? And so with that in mind, I want you to turn now to Acts chapter 20. That's where we're going to start. Acts chapter 20, verse 22. Paul has completed now his third missionary journey. And he's on his way to Jerusalem because he's feeling this very strong prompting through the the leading of the Holy Spirit. In fact, you recall in verse 22, Paul said this, and see now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem. The idea of being bound is like, literally, Paul's like, I feel like I'm, I'm being carried almost. Like, I almost don't have a choice. It's so strong, this sense from the Holy Spirit, this opportunity that the Holy Spirit, that the Lord was leading him to Jerusalem. And so Paul, he's like, I need to step into this. But notice what else he says in verse 22. He says, but I do so not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. So Paul is saying, the Spirit is leading me to go to Jerusalem, and I've been heading in that direction now for a number of weeks, but everywhere I go, every city I come to, the believers I meet with are reminding me that they're telling me that they're sensing from the Spirit that chains and tribulations await me there, but Paul was ready to step into that. Why? Look at verse 24. In verse 24, he says, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life as dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul basically is saying this, I'm willing to do this, even though the spirit is testifying, chains and tribulations await me, but I'm willing to do this because my life is not my own. I belong to Jesus. He put it this way in Galatians chapter two, verse 20. Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So check this out. In Acts chapter 20, the Holy Spirit is telling Paul, this is what I have for you. I want you to go to Jerusalem, but but when you get there, chains and tribulations are awaiting. You're going to be arrested, and it's going to be hard. There's going to be suffering, but Paul is like, okay, I'm willing to step into that. And we're told in the book of Romans, part of the reason why I think Paul felt so strongly and was willing to do that, in the book of Romans, he said that his his desire to see his Jewish brothers and sisters saved and come to meet Jesus was so strong in Paul's heart that Paul literally said, I'm willing to perish if they could be saved. So what's interesting, Jerusalem is the epicenter of Judaism. It's where the most Jewish people lived at that particular time in the first century. 
And so Paul is like, I am so burdened for my unsaved Jewish brethren. I want to get to Jerusalem and share Jesus with them. And even though chains and tribulations are awaiting me, that's okay. I'm ready to step into this. But then we see something in Acts chapter 21 that kind of throws some tension to this whole thing that we've been reading about in chapter 20, what what God was doing in in Paul's life. I want you to, let's read it, and I want you to see if you see the tension. In verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass when we had departed from them and set sail. So remember last week we saw chapter 20 left off with Paul meeting on the island of Miletus with the Ephesian elders. And he said, shared his heart with them. Now he's getting ready to leave. And it says, Running a straight course, we came to Kos. And so they stopped there for the night, and the following day to Rose, Rhodes, and then from there to Patera. And finding ships sailing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left and sailed to Syria and landed in Tyre. For there the ship was to unload her cargo, and finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. Now, I love this. Pause there for a minute. Remember last week we talked about how Paul's whole mindset and way of life, the way he approached life was he wanted to give more than he took. He wanted to give to others more than he took. So here he's traveling, and everywhere he goes, he's stops to find out you know where the ship lands he's going to stay there tonight he finds some believers why because he wants to give to them he wants to encourage them he wants to come alongside of them and so that's what he's doing here but something happens with the believers he's going to hang out with the christians entire for seven days and notice what it says in the the latter part there of verse four it says and they told paul catch this through the spirit not to go up to jerusalem And when we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went our way, and they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city, and we knelt down on the shore and prayed. And when we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship, and they returned home. Do you see the tension? In Acts 20, Paul's saying, the Holy Spirit has captured me. He has me bound. He's moving me toward Jerusalem. And every city I go to, the believers are telling me that chains and tribulations are awaiting me. And then he comes to Tyre. And the believers in Tyre, it says, that through the spirits, they said to Paul, don't go. Don't go to Jerusalem. And the tense is, is that they said it over and over again. Like they can't, they're telling Paul, look, the Holy Spirit keeps impressing on our hearts that you are not supposed to go. What's happening here? Has, is the Holy Spirit suddenly confused? Has God changed his mind? Is God wanting to take Paul on a detour here? He doesn't think so. He presses on. He keeps going. Well, I think what happens next gives us the answer to what's happening and why it, it, we can look at this and, and feel like there's a bit of a mixed message here. We'll pick it up in verse 7. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Tolomus, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. And on the next day... We who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea, 
and entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Remember Philip? We met him back in Acts chapter 6, when the early church needed to appoint deacons. Philip was one of them. He was one of seven. He went on to be called by the Lord to be an evangelist. And so he went sharing Jesus, and God moved through him in many different ways and places. But now he's in Samaria, and verse 9 says, Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. How crazy is that? He's got four girls, and they're all prophets. They all have the gift of prophecy, and God is using them. And, and it reminds me of Aaron Sabio. Aaron's our young adults pastor. He sings up here sometimes. He's the Filipino guy. And uh, all of Aaron's brothers, he's got four or five brothers, they're all pastors. It's like in this one family, God just called them, and he's done something, and he's using them. That's what was happening here. And you know that saying you know, uh, of prophets, that, that prophets of a feather flock together, Right? Well, watch what happens next, okay? We see in verse 10, and as we stayed many days, here comes another prophet. A certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and when he had come to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his hands and feet and said, thus says the Holy Spirit. So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the, the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So here's what happens. Agabus, this other prophet, shows up in, in Caesarea. And Agabus is a dramatic guy, okay? He's not some timid guy, you know, I think I got a word for you, Paul. No, he's like bold and dramatic. And he takes Paul's belt, which would have been like the sash that went across his robe. And he binds his hands and feet. And he says, whoever owns this belt, when he goes to Jerusalem, is going to be bound with this belt. He's going to be bound in chains by the Jews and delivered to the Gentiles. And everyone knows that it is Paul's belts. So notice the reaction of the believers in hearing this, verse 12. Now when we, this is including Luke who's writing this, so this is, you know, the believers there and all of Paul's friends. Now when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. They respond to this word from Agabus by pleading with Paul not to go. They're interpreting the message the same way the believers did in Tyre, that the Holy Spirit was giving a message of prohibition, prohibiting Paul not to go. But here's what I want you to catch. I want you to notice again what Agabus says. I'm going to read it to you in two different versions, the CSB and the the New Living Translation. And in every single one, it, it says the same thing. I mean, you look at every translation that there is of the Bible. But I want you to notice, notice closely. This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way... The Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Notice the New Living Translation. The Holy Spirit declares, so shall the owner of this belt be bound by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem and turned over to the Gentiles. Now here's what I want you to catch. 
Here's what is missing in every single translation of this verse in Acts chapter 21. What's missing is an if. There's no if. In other words, Agabus is not saying, if the person who owns this belt goes to Jerusalem, this is what is going to happen to him. There is no if. The implication, though, is that Agabus is saying, this is what's going to happen to the person who owns this belt when he goes to Jerusalem. But here's the problem. All of Paul's friends... The believers entire, Luke who's writing this, all of the guys are following, they're, they're, they're hearing the message over and over. They hear it entire. They hear it again from Agabus, and they're interpreting the message to be a message of prohibition. The Holy Spirit saying, Paul, I'm prohibiting you from going, but Paul doesn't see it that way. He doesn't see it as a message of prohibition. He sees it as a message of preparation, that the Holy Spirit is seeking to prepare him because notice there in verse 13, it says, then Paul answered, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul sees it this way. Look, You guys keep telling me the same thing. The Holy Spirit keeps speaking through all of you the same thing because he's wanting to prepare me for what's coming and he's wanting to prepare you for how to pray for me. That's how Paul is seeing this. Verse 14 says, So when he would not be persuaded, we see saying, The Lord's will will be done. Now here's what I want you to catch. Remember back in Acts chapter 9, We saw Paul's conversion when he used to be called Saul of Tarsus. He was a Pharisee. He was a really religious dude. He hated Jesus. He hated the followers of Jesus. He saw Christianity as a threat to the religion that he loved. So he set out single-handedly to try and destroy all the followers of Jesus. He would go from city to city, town to town, and have believers arrested, He had some of them killed. He was a man on a rampage. But in Acts chapter 9, when he's on one of these missions to go and have believers in the city of Damascus arrested, he has an encounter with the resurrected Jesus Christ. And it changes everything. His eyes are open and he comes to realize that that Jesus was alive and he goes from being the number one enemy of Jesus to the number one pursuer of Jesus and then the number one witness of Jesus in the world. But it was right around that time of Paul's conversion that Jesus reveals to him why he chose him, why he was apprehended, what what his assignment was going to be. And he says, he puts it this way, he says, you are my chosen vessel to bring the gospel, the good news message to the Jews. And if you've been with us in our study through the last half of the book of Acts, we have seen Paul, haven't we, sharing Jesus with his Jewish brethren. Every city he goes to, he goes first into the synagogue because that's where the Jews hang out. And he talks to them about Jesus and some of them have gotten saved. So we could say, okay, check, you know, he's been doing that. But Jesus also said, and you are my chosen vessel to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. 
And we've been watching him do that too, haven't we? We've seen him go from city to city. And when the Jews reject him, he goes and he starts preaching to the Gentiles. And all over the Middle East and all over Asia, we have seen Paul plant churches that are filled with Gentile believers in Jesus Christ. But the the, the Lord also told him at that time in Acts chapter 9, right around the time of his conversion, and know this, Paul, you're going to suffer for me. You're going to encounter a lot of suffering being my chosen vessel. And we could say, check, we've seen that too. I mean, we've seen Paul beaten. We've seen Paul stoned with rocks and left for dead. We've seen Paul shipwrecked. We've seen Paul in prison and we've seen him run out of town. So we could say, check, check, check. This is what the Lord said. You're going to be my chosen vessel to bring the gospel to the Jews, to the Gentiles, but you're going to suffer. Check, check, check. We've been watching that now for, you know, 10 chapters. That's what's been happening. But at that same time, listen close. The Lord also said to Paul, and you are going to be my chosen vessel to bring the gospel to kings and rulers. We haven't seen Paul do that yet. He hasn't done that yet, but that's exactly what is going to happen because of Paul's imprisonment in Jerusalem. We'll see in chapter 22 that Paul will share his testimony with his Jewish brethren in the presence of a Roman commander. We'll see him in chapter 24 share his testimony and the gospel with Governor Felix. And then we'll see him in chapter 25 share his testimony and the gospel with Governor Festus from Gunsmoke. Um, (laughs) That was an old show and the deputy's name was, yeah. But we'll also see him share in chapter 25 and 26 the gospel with King Agrippa. And then we'll see Paul get sent to Rome, where we'll find out later he actually gets an audience with Caesar Nero himself to share the gospel with him. And while he's imprisoned in Rome, we're told that the gospel ends up being spread throughout the whole palace guard, all of Nero's guard. How did that happen? Well, these guys would get a sign to guard Paul there in prison. And so they're thinking they're there to watch a captive, and Paul's sitting there looking at like, I've got a captive audience. This guy can't go anywhere. And so what are they going to talk about? He starts talking to him about Jesus. It's like when you get on an airplane and somebody doesn't put their earbuds in, you've got a captive audience, you know, that for five, ten-hour flight, whatever it might be. So they, he's talking about Jesus with these guards, and a lot of them, they start getting saved. And the gospel spreads throughout the whole palace guards. But we're also told in the book of Philippians, it spread not only throughout the whole palace guard, but into the whole household of Caesar. How did that happen? Well, these guys who were guarding Paul, you know, one week they'd spend guarding him. They'd be his cellmate there for a week, and they'd hear all about Jesus, and some of them get saved. And then the next week, they'd be assigned to guard Nero's kids 
and his grandkids and the cousins and the uncles, like the secret service, you know, following those uh, of royalty. And so they're walking around following them and they say, hey, you know, what was your assignment last week? Oh, I was guarding that guy, Paul the Apostle. You know, what was that like? Well, let me tell you. And they start sharing Jesus with the family of Nero and a bunch of them start getting saved. Now, here's my point. None of that happens if Paul doesn't go to Jerusalem and get imprisoned. Isn't that amazing to think about? Listen, the Holy Spirit was giving everybody the same message. Paul, when you go to Jerusalem, chains and tribulation await you. But Paul's friends were interpreting the message different than he was. Paul's well-meaning friends were interpreting it, as I said, as a prohibition, as the Holy Spirit prohibiting Paul from going because they're thinking, if Paul goes to Jerusalem and suffers, we're going to be deprived of his ministry and that can't be God's will. And I think this scene speaks loudly to our American Christian culture that likes to think if God is in something, it's not going to be hard because God wants me to be happy. And if I'm not happy, then I can't be in God's will. And God doesn't want me to suffer pain. And so if I'm suffering pain, I can't be in God's will. But listen, friends, the Bible never says that. In fact, Jesus promised in John chapter 16, verse 33, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. So he says, I don't want you to be moved. I want you to have peace. I don't want you to be wrestled by what I'm going to say. But he says, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. Jesus gives a promise to us. And this is a promise that that we don't like to grab a hold of. He says, in this world, you're going to have tribulation. You're going to have trials. You're going to have difficulty. I think Oswald Chambers expresses wonderfully what our mindset should be. He says, to choose to suffer means that there is something wrong with us. In other words, Jesus isn't calling any of us to be masochists. That we're just like, just beat me, please. You know, no, that's not what he's calling us to. He says to choose to suffer means that there is something wrong with us. But listen, but to choose God's will, even if it means suffering, is a very different thing. No healthy saint ever chooses suffering. He chooses God's will as Jesus did, whether it means suffering or not. Listen closely. Our interpretation to what God is doing, especially in the hard times of suffering, is of key importance. You know, sometimes we go through a heavy trial or difficulty, and we're tempted to believe God has abandoned us. God doesn't doesn't love us. That, my friends, is the wrong interpretation. Now listen to me. Sometimes we go through and experience difficulty and trials as the result of our own stupidity and rebellion. It's what the Bible calls reaping what we sow. 
And when we choose to live our lives in a way that goes against what God has put in his word, the Bible says, look, you're going to reap what you sow. But even in the midst of that, if that's the difficulty, if it's caused by your own rebellion, the Lord hasn't abandoned you. The Lord is still with us, and the trial is his very way of seeking to get our attention. I mean, it's like Jonah. The the Lord gives Jonah this opportunity. He wants him to be his chosen vessel to go and preach to the Ninevites. And Jonah's like, I don't want to do that. So he rebels. He goes in the opposite direction, and, and God chases after him, has a big fish swallow Jonah. That was the consequence of Jonah's rebellion But it was also because God loved him and hadn't abandoned him and wanted Jonah to experience what he wanted him to step into, that God went to extreme lengths to chase after his prophet. Had a big fish swallow him. He spends three days and three nights in the belly of the big fish. And I want you to listen to me. If you have walked away from Jesus or if you have been running from Jesus and you find yourself in a jam today, it might be God trying to get your attention to bring you back. So I want to encourage you, stop running and surrender. So sometimes we experience difficulty because of our own rebellion and stupidity, but sometimes... Sometimes we go through difficulties because we are living in this fallen world. And struggles and trials are a part of it. Notice Jesus didn't say, in this world you might have tribulation. He says, no, in this world you will have tribulation. Trials and tribulation and difficulty are part of being a human being. And some of you are in the midst of a very trial right now. And the devil has been whispering in your ear these lies. God doesn't love you. If he loved you, you wouldn't be going through this. If he loved you, this wouldn't be happening to you. And some of you right now are in a place where you have been tempted to just bail on your faith. To just walk away from the Lord or bail on a marriage. Or just come to a place where you just sort of check out spiritually, where you just kind of say, you know what, I'm just done. I'm just going to watch Netflix all day long, you know? Listen, you are interpreting the trial the wrong way. The very thing that you are going through right now, or that some of you will be going through in the near future, is what God is using to prepare you for something great. The opposition that you are experiencing right now is so strong and so intense because God is going to do something wonderful. And this is what I want to encourage you to do today, church. Step into it. Step into it. Trusting that God is moving and working and he's using that difficulty to make you more like Jesus. The Apostle Peter wrote these words in 1 Peter chapter 1. He said, in this you greatly rejoice, 
knowing that for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. And he was writing to people who were going through intense persecution under Rome, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says, look, it's the trials that bring out the genuineness of our faith. It's like gold being put in the fire. And here's what happens. When the goldsmith puts the gold in the fire, all the impurities in the gold rise to the surface. And he takes it out and he scrapes off the impurities and he puts it back in. And more impurities rise to the surface. And he takes it out again, scrapes it off. And he looks at it. And more impurities rise. And he takes it out and he scrapes it off, puts it back in. And you know when the goldsmith knows that the gold is finally pure is when he looks at it and he sees his reflection. Well, the Lord allows us to go through trials and difficulties because it's his way of putting us in the fire so that the impurities, the yucky stuff in us comes to the surface and he scrapes it off. And what he's doing is he's putting us in the trial, in the difficulty, because he wants to see us become more like him. That he would see his reflection in us. James reminded us of a similar thing when he said this. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Listen, church. Listen, friends. You are his workmanship you are his masterpiece in the making jesus is working in your life right now to transform you to make you more like himself and he has an assignment for you for each one of us he has assignments in this season of our lives, in this stage, in the midst of the trial that you are in, he has an assignment. Here's the question. Will you step into it, or are you just going to kind of sit there and moan and groan about it? Or even worse, are you like Jonah, going to run from it? To run from him and believe the lie of the enemy that God doesn't love you. Can I encourage you today? No matter where you find yourself today, step into it and let him carry you through the midst of the difficulty. Step into it and let him carry you through the storm. Step into it and let him carry you to and through your assignment so that you can be used by the Lord. Step into it believing that he's preparing you for something great. Amen?